would you pray with me as I pray? Father, it is true that you reign. I pray that your spirit would rain down on this place now and that you would reign in our hearts. Lord, may we not just sing the words, may all I am, that all we are is yours. May we live it. Lord, even in these next few moments, may we live it by just diligently pressing into you as we continue to worship you in your word. Lord, may the words of this mouth and the meditations of our collective hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It is in Jesus' name we pray these things. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The last words written by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote so many, go like this. For I am already poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. But I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And there is for me laid up in heaven the crown of righteousness, which the Lord himself, the righteous judge, will give to me. But not only to me, to all who have loved his appearing. Paul gets to the end of his life and he's chained to a wall and he knows his execution is imminent. And he says, I have given my life for what matters forever. And he asks Timothy then, and he asks us today, are you ready for this? This is what Christianity is. Are you ready for this? Some of you are going to say, this is the same message that we heard last week. And I will tell you, in some ways it is in that there are four things that in this series that we've been in in 2 Timothy, this is, we're in week five now, there are four things that Paul just over and over and over talks about. He talks over and over in chapters 1, 2, 3, and now in chapter 4, ministry is hard, and it's supposed to be. He talks about the fact that false teachers are going to creep in and that we must cling to the gospel. He talks about the fact that salvation is sure in Christ. He talks about the fact that we need to remember the difference he's made. He keeps telling Tim, Paul, Timothy, remember the difference he and his word has made in your life, Timothy. And then he says, cling to the word because it's where the power is found. So these four things that I see over and over in this letter, and part of why it's my favorite letter, is ministry is still hard, the world is still lost, the gospel is still going forward, and the, world, the word is still where the power is. So why don't we open it? As we take a look at today's message, which is entitled, Take the Fight to Them. Open your Bibles up to 2 Timothy. It's towards the end of your New Testament. All the T's are together, so it's after 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. You have 1st and 2nd Timothy, so open up there. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 4. But before I do, I want to mention that like some people might look at a title like Take the Fight to Them and think, man, that doesn't sound very Christian. Aren't we supposed to be loving? The answer is yes, of course we are, but sometimes that love looks tough. Right? And so before we just go... Wait, this is just Doug's take on this. Let's remember the passage that we looked at when we were going through the toolkit together for all those weeks as we looked at Upon This Rock, we called that series. And you remember there was the scene where Jesus is walking with his disciples and he says, so who do the people say that I am? And his disciples say, well, some say you're Elijah and some say that you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he turns on him and he's quickly and he says, okay, but who do you 
say that I am? Because that's the question of life. It doesn't matter what your parents say. It doesn't matter what your friends say. It doesn't matter what your neighbors say. It doesn't matter what your kids say. What matters is how do you answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? And Peter pipes up, I know, I know, I know. You are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the fulfillment of the promises of God. And Jesus looks at him and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because my father has revealed that to you. But then get this. And why taking the fight to them is a very Christ-like thing. Because right after that he says, And Peter, upon this rock, upon the proclamation of the gospel, which is just simply that Jesus Christ came, lived, died, and rose again to save sinners as a fulfillment of all of the promises of God. Upon that rock, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Guys, that is an offensive statement. That means we are to be on offense. It, the gates are not around the church. The gates are around the pit of hell. And we are to storm the pit of hell by the power of the gospel. We're to take the fight into the darkness because he is the one that is fighting for us. So today the question I'm asking is how should we live? In light of that, in light of this offensive gospel that we're called to go take out and be on offense for, how shall we live? Paul's wrapping up this letter. It's the last letter he's going to write. He knows these are his last words. And in just the four, the five verses we're going to look at today, which are basically a couple of sentences in Greek, maybe 80 words, nine of them are imperatives, which are just commands. So nine times the Holy Spirit inspires Paul in this short little five verses to bark out orders that just say, do it, don't doubt it. That's what an imperative is. Do it, don't doubt it, don't question it, don't wonder about it, don't study it like theology, just do it. And that's what he's going to tell us today. Guys, why is he so desperate? Why is Paul so passionate in this letter that it's just so full of these commands? It's because these are the last words of a father to his son. Remember where we started? Timothy, my son. Right, these are the last words that he is going to speak, and he is desperate to make sure Timothy gets the message. And he's not going to say, Timothy, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you and so do I, so let's just all hug each other and, and say goodbye. He's saying, Timothy, I love you enough to command you to live out this walk because it's all that matters. Guys, if this was my last message at Cornerstone, if this was the last time I was ever to preach to you, I would want to be remembered for being someone who preached hard, who preached strong, who demanded that we cling to the word of God and the truth rather than someone who was soft and cuddly and warm and fuzzy and had rotten children. Right. So today's question, how now shall we live? We need to live knowing the time is short. We need to live knowing the time is short and the consequences are eternal by being proclaimers of his truth. Look at verses 1 and 2 of 2 Timothy 4. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, Timothy. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. 
Look at how he starts. I charge you in the presence of God. It's almost like he's saying, guys, this is not my personal opinion here. Right? This is serious business. This is from the Lord. He's saying to Timothy, if I haven't gotten your attention yet, listen up. This is towards the end of the letter, and all of a sudden he's like, I'm ch after all of these charges we've heard over the last four weeks, he's saying, now, in the presence of God, do this. Preach the word, Timothy. If you remember back a couple of weeks ago when we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 15, he said this more or less the same thing. Again, he repeats himself a lot here. Be diligent to show yourself approved, a workman not ashamed, rightly handling God's word, the word of truth. He wants Timothy to be a man of the word because that's the truth. And it's in season and out of season. Here's what, he's saying, here's what that means. It means regardless of the weather, not physical weather, but political weather, social weather. It is not socially popular or politically correct to say that marriage is between one man and one woman. I just did Mark and Karis Abril's uh, wedding yesterday afternoon. It was a blessed time. And one of the things we talk about in marriage is that the reason marriage was created by God the way it was between one man and one woman is because together as man and wife, we reflect the beauty that is the triune Godhead. That's why marriage matters. But that's not correct. That's not politically correct anymore. Paul is telling me today, he's telling us, it doesn't matter whether it's seasonally acceptable. Do it. Don't doubt it. Preach the word. It's a command. Being a Christian is countercultural and counterintuitive. Part of why Paul is barking out all these orders at Timothy and at us is because we need to be told what to do. Guys, left to ourselves, we are no good. The book of Judges says over and over, it says, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. That is always a bad idea. Has been since the beginning. That's what caused Adam and Eve to fall in the garden. It's what creates all the problems that we see throughout the Old Testament, and it's still true in my heart today. When I stop and think to myself, I am in trouble. When I look at the word and say, what does God want me to do? Then I bring him glory. This is not a word study, but I want to point out a few of these, because every one of these things is a command. When he says, when he says here, rebu reprove, rebuke, exhort, these are all commands, they're all imperatives, do it, don't doubt it. So here's what reprove means. It means to show someone they are wrong. It's like refuting something. It's like, oh, no, 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 that's not right. Just because you think that, just because you feel that, doesn't make it right. He's saying, reprove people. The true-to-me thing doesn't make it true. Rebuke is an expression of strong disapproval. It's punishing someone. It's actually, whether that's physical or just emotional, it's not just saying, hey, wait, wait, wait a second, let me, let me, refute your, your thinking here, it's actually saying you're just dead wrong and I'm not going to sit and listen to it. Exhorting is to come alongside. It's the same word here that is the root word for the Holy, what the, Holy, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is our exhorter. He's our encourager. He's our paraclete. He comes alongside us and he encourages us. It's what, it's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, encourage someone, but here's the sense of the word in the way Paul used it. To action. 
It's not just encourage, man, David, I love you. You're a, man, you just you make me smile. And you do. But get busy, man. Do the work. Right? That's what exhorting means. It means, and here's what work looks like. Be in the Word every day. But whatever those things are. He's saying it's not just encourage, like, man, you're awesome. Everybody's a winner. Here's your trophy for being a participant. He's saying, no, do the work. And we'll see that in a few minutes. Patience. The word patience there means endure pain at your expense. Patience means, it doesn't mean put up with, like, just, ah, I'm just, you know, it's okay, it's who they are. But it means endure pain at your expense. And then instruction means transfer knowledge that implies activity. So it's not just head knowledge. It's actually telling people to do stuff and showing them how to do it. That's how Jesus taught. That's why he walked with his disciples for three years. So we do all of these things with what? We'll go back to what Paul says. Preach the word. Then it's be ready in season to do these things, to approve, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Because for us to do those things with the word, we have to know the word. That means we have to be in the word and get the word into us. And I'm going to not get high on my soapbox this week because I hit it hard last week, but I am going to go back to those statistics that I shared at the end of the sermon last week. If you remember, there was a, a group called the International Bible Society that, that, that surveyed thousands of North Americans. And they surveyed them and said, tell me about how often you're in God's word and tell me about your quality of life, your relationships, your peace, your, your, um, your priorities, your outlook. And they tracked them over time. And then they crunched all the numbers. And what they figured out was, if you're in the Word one day a week, that included Sunday at church, it makes no difference. If you're in the Word two days a week, maybe on a small group day or something, which we encourage you to be in, it still makes no difference. There was no, there was no improvement in people's outlook, their relationships, nothing. At, the, at three days a week, it started to move the needle a little bit, and the, and the statistics went up a little bit. At four or more days a week, when someone was in the Word of God, because what that implies is you're in it on your own. It's not just at church on Sunday. It's not just in your small group. You're actually in it on your own. Look at what happens. Feeling lonely dropped th or, or improved 30%. Anger improved 32%. Bitterness improved 40%. Spiritual stagnant, being spiritually stagnant improved 60%. Areas of sin, like struggling with pornography, improved 62%. And then get these, sharing your faith improved 200%. Discipling other people, because which is what Paul's telling us to do right here in these words to Timothy, improved 250%. Why? Because you are, one, you're, you're, you're being conformed to the image of Christ, you're going to just do what Jesus did. What did he do? He discipled people. He shared his faith. You know it. You feel better. You're, you're feeling more confident about it, so you're in it. Ten years ago, Willow Creek was church started by Bill Hybels years and years ago that really, is, that really birthed what we think of as the seeker-sensitive megachurch model. Ten years ago, so after they'd been doing that model for about 30 years, ten years ago, they came out, they did a self-study, and they were very transparent. But what, here's what they discovered, and, and the study was very detailed. Here's what, as it relates to what, what I'm talking about now, here's what, was, here's what they found out. The only people in their audience, which was multi-site, multi-campuses throughout the country, the only people 
that showed a level of spiritual maturity are the ones in their survey who reported that they were in their Bible on their own. Thousands upon thousands of people flocking to the Willow Creek model every single Sunday, and, the, and, and it made no difference in their life. None. The only ones that grew in maturity were the ones that were in the Bible on their own. Lifeway, is a, is a publisher, they have a store, I think it's closing, but they're a publisher. They did a study, a similar thing, and here's what they discovered. The secret to maturing in your faith in Christ is not just being in God's word, but what they called engaging in his word. What we call reading and responding. And like I mentioned last week, next week at the, at, during the fellowship meal, for those that want to, we have these blue flyers on the connect table. They're in the back. I, I didn't want to put them in the bulletin this week because your bulletin already blew up. But it tells you how to get into the Word and how to get the Word into you. And next week, for those that would like to, in every fellowship Sunday from then on, we're going to sit down and just talk about how you can be in, be in and engage in the Word of God. Because it will supernaturally change your life. But guys, I'm not just inviting you into a book. Right? I'm not just saying read this book like you'd read any book. I'm asking, I'm inviting you into an experience of the living God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Word was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Because this is how we experience Christ. And as long as I'm the main teaching pastor at Cornerstone Church... I can't help but share this message because it's just who I am. Because of the difference it has made in my life. And I so desperately want you to experience that difference. To stop living in this feeble, mediocre faith that comes from punching a ticket. Guys, there's nothing special about me. Nothing. If you're saved, you have the same Holy Spirit. You have a Bible. If you don't have one, we have one for you. The reason I am who I am in Christ is because His Spirit empowers me to see His Word, but because men in my life 20 years ago who I looked at and went, I, I'm a believer and they're a believer, but man, we're at whole different levels. I want what they've got. The only way that was going to happen is if I did what they did. That's what discipleship is. So I ask them, what do you do? They get up every morning and they read and they respond to the Word of God. And it changed their life. And 20 years ago, I started too. And it's changed my entire walk with the Lord. Guys, it, if you're sitting here going, man, I, I, I get it, Doug. I hear it, but I, I just, I don't, I don't feel that sense that you're talking about. I'd ask you, how often are you genuinely making time to meet with the Savior of the universe? Because he will change your life. So today's question, how shall we live? We have to be proclaimers of the truth. That means we have to be in the truth. We have to know the truth. The second thing is we have to recognize lies. And again, he talked about this, he's talked about this multiple times in this letter, but look at the next couple of verses. For the time will come when they will, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. 
and will turn away their hearts from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Because when he says the time will come when, when, when they will not endure sound doctrine, who is the they? Guess what? It's us. I mean, it's them then, but it's people in the church. He's not talking about the world. He's, this is not a passage where he's talking about, and the world is not going to accept the truth of God. He's talking about people that are in churches he's planted, where Timothy is pastoring right now, and he's writing back to Timothy, and he's saying, Timothy, the day has already come, but the day is coming where they're not going to want to hear the truth of God's word, but they're going to want to have their ears tickled. Here's what that means. Is they they, they want to have their ears, they have itching ears, and they want their ears scratched. Here's what that means. They want to hear what they want to hear. And they don't just want to hear what they want to hear. They want to hear that what they want to hear is okay. I will say that again, because that was really confusing even to me, and I said it. They not only want to hear what they want to hear, they want to hear that what they want to hear, it's okay to do this, Doug. It's okay to do that, Doug. It's okay. They want to hear that that's okay. So what is their solution? Well, Paul tells us what their solution is to that, hearing what they want to hear. They accumulate for themselves teachers who will tell them not just what they want to hear, but will tell them that that's okay. That just feels right to me. Right? That, just, that just speaks to me. The way the New Living Translation translates verse 3 makes this point really clear, so it's going to come up on the screen. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. Now remember, that is talking about the church. That's not talking about the world. That's what's scary. That should concern us a lot. Because it's come true. So how does this happen? How does it happen that, that even people... And, and I would bet... I'll ask. It's not my... I'll ask. And not, don't, don't say any names. If you know someone that, you, that, that professed faith in Christ and you really believe at some point that you're like, yeah, they're a believer and they have wandered off to a place where, man, they are so, they're, they're still saying they're a Christian, but they're wandered from the truth of God's word. Raise your hand. So if you've, if you've had people in your life, you're like, man, I, yeah, I think that person was a Christian, but they are now, like, completely sideways. And they're still professing faith in Christ. How does that happen? Well, here's how it happens according to this passage. First thing that happens is we want what we want. The first thing that happens is sin. Sin is always the first cause of not being in God's glory. Right? So the first thing is, I want what I want. I am all about me, and I'm, and I'm speaking to me, about me. I am all about me and feeding my flesh apart from Christ. So we have our wants. Our wants get our ears itching. I want someone to make me feel better about what I want. I want someone to say to me, it's okay, Doug. It's okay that you're mean to your wife, or it's okay that you're neglecting your children, or it's okay that you're watching those things on, on your computer. It's, you know what? Because you're covered by whatever the thing is. I, in my flesh, I want that. So the next thing, the third thing, so, so, I, so my ears start going, okay, I've got to find someone who's going to tell me that makes me feel better about that. So we turn from, or we reject, or we change 
the truth of God's word. Well, it doesn't really seem right anymore. That was probably a cultural thing, so we're just going to change it and, and, and morph it a little bit. And then we go find teachers that are going to proclaim that false truth in the name of Christ. And the fat last thing is we fill the void of God's truth with the lies of the enemy. Because there's a reason that Satan is called an angel of light. We think that the only place Satan shows up is in dark, evil, disgusting places. Most of his damage is done looking very bright. And we just don't know this enough to know the difference. And again, that ought to scare us. Look at what Timothy, if you remember back there, look at chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. This is, this is how Timothy, or Paul described it to Timothy in chapter 3 a couple weeks ago. Well, actually, last week, I guess it was. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they deny its power. Avoid men such as these. Again, guys, he's not talking about the world there. He's talking about people that are sitting in churches. And that is a scary thing to us. What do we desire? Guys, that, that, that's really where the problem comes. What do we desire? We desire comfort. We desire pleasure. We desire our way. Right? We, we would rather have our ears tickled than our hearts torn open by the word of God, so we avoid it. A writer for the New York Times, of all places, wrote an op-ed piece, and he said this. We have such an overstimulated way of living and such an extremely idealized look at life, we have become a people with an insatiable desire for entertainment and a really low pain threshold. So much so that even evangelical churches have stopped being about the messiness of relationship and find it more appealing to the masses to promote entertainment in their gatherings. That's a writer for the New York Times. He gets it. Guys, this is why, because we, we our big pro, part of our problem in the church is we've turned, we've turned church, Christianity, into a spectator sport. Right, I'm going to come, I'm going to watch, I'm going to leave. That's part of why we extended our service times, did the prayer and the, and the fellowship afterwards. It's why we had the little hot dog thing last week to sort of encourage people to hang out and fellowship together. It's why we have summer small groups and say, let's get in community together. It's why we're doing, as Jeff said, I know you had a lot to cover today, we're doing the pool party and the marriage retreat and the, and the all-church retreat in October as, as trying to be outreach-oriented. And all of those things require participation by us together. Right? We are the church. Because all those things are just avenues and settings for the, for the mess, for the glorious mess of community to take place. Our fellowship meals are just, a, are just a setting for community to take place so that people can see the one another's. That's why we do them. But guys, all of those things, fellowship meals, church, even just every Sunday, they should not, this is not a concert and I'm not or, or a public speaking event. This is not a movie. You, you come in to one of those places, and if they said to you, hey, would you mind setting your chairs up before you sit down? You'd be like, 
well, wait a second. What's the deal with that? Right? That's not what I came here for. Unfortunately, we've turned the church into that. Right? We've said, no, I just want to show up to my place that's already prepared, and when the things are done, I want to leave because there are paid people to take care of that. Well, one, that's not true at Cornerstone, and, and you guys are a faithful, serving bunch, but we all know areas of our own life and areas of other people where they have bought into this idea that I don't really have to give. I mean, I, I maybe put my tithe in the box, and, and I'm good to go. Guys, this should be more of a family reunion. This should look like everybody, not just this on Sundays, but the retreats, the events we have, the small groups, this should be everybody pitching in. That's what the body of Christ is because that displays his glory. That's why we do it. So the world will see a better way. So the last point, how, do we live, how shall we live? Be proclaimers of truth, be recognizers of lies, and then be fulfillers of ministry. So look at how Paul ends the passage we're going to look at today in verse 4, or verse 5. He says, so he's saying, he's saying these people are telling lies, and they're, and they're just feeding people comfortable falsehoods. And he says, but you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Be sober in all things. All he's saying, be sober-minded. He's saying don't be a slave to anything but Christ. Don't let addiction to other stuff, any worldly stuff, enslave you. Endure hardship. That means suffer emotional pain in relationships. Do the work. There's back to that first thing. It's, it's work. Right? It's, these, are, these are imperatives. These are not just, hey, here's a suggestion. This is actually do it. Do the work of an evangelist. Guys, this is not gift of evangelism evangelist that he's using here. This is everybody. And all, he's, all an evangelist is, is someone who shares good news. An evangel in the Bible is someone who shares good news. The evangel in the Bible is the good news that Jesus Christ came, lived, and died, and was born, and, and rose again for our, for our eternal glory, for our, eternal, our eternity with him. That's what, the, that's what evangelism in the church sense is. It's telling people what God has told you. That's, that's what he's telling us to do when he says, do the work of an evangelist. And then it's fulfill your ministry. That's not just a charge to Timothy. He had a ministry. That's a charge to all of us. And it's, and it's specific in the role of service to others. About 20 years ago, when I, when I started meeting, being discipled by a man of God, one of the first books he had us read together in the small group that I was in was Warren Wiersbe's book called On Being a Servant of God. And this quote has always stuck with me. Ministry takes place when divine resources, that means God, meets human needs, not just physical, emotional, social, spiritual needs, when divine resources meets human needs through loving channels, that's us, we're the loving channels, to the glory of God. That's ministry. So what's yours? That's the question. That's the question Timothy is asking. That's the question that he is asking us today. If you don't know what your spiritual gifting is, uh, again, on the Connect table, we have these little orange uh, little booklet things that have what the gifts are. 
and how they can be used in the body, I would encourage you to start there. Not, don't finish there. This is not going to tell you exactly where to serve in Cornerstone or anywhere else. I'm just saying this is a good place to start if you don't know. Start looking at how has, because guys, God has packed your bag. If you're a believer, God has saved you on purpose for a purpose. If his only end game for your life was your salvation, then the minute you came to Christ, what would he do? Take you home. Because you're going to worship him better there. You're going to glorify him better there. You're going to stop sinning there. So why would he leave you here? He, the, the fact that you're a believer and here on earth tells you you have a job to do for him. That's your ministry. As my ministry, and I kind of renewed it to myself in, in 2019, my ministry is to exalt Christ. It's to encourage and exhort others. It's to equip the saints for the work of service. And it's to evangelize the stranger. That's mine. That doesn't mean, doesn't mean it's everybody's. But guys, in, in Ephesians, don't turn there, but if you're taking notes, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this. And by the way, that's the church that Timothy was writing, or was pastoring. He, so he's writing to the, this church in Ephesus where Timothy is, and he says this, but God has given some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors, teachers. Now here's the problem. What the church has done is they've said, okay, there's the, there, there's the job description. Doug is the pastor teacher. Period. We don't, and, and now all of a sudden, the paid professional is to be about the work of ministry. But Paul didn't put a period on the end of that sentence. One, because Paul almost never puts a period on anything. He just writes really long sentences. <laughs> but two, it's because he says he's given some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And then he immediately says, for the equipping of the saints, that's everybody in the church, for the work of service or ministry for the building up of the body of Christ so that we would all be conformed into the maturity of Christ. It's Ephesians 4, know, 16 through the end of the chapter. Is, do you get what he's saying? Yes, there are ministers, like, like my, I, I'm here to exhort and encourage and equip, but it isn't period. It's so that you guys will figure out what your gifting is so that we will together be the body of Christ. And for some of you, your gifting is to teach the word of God. And for some of you, it's to serve. And for some, but, you got, but we got together, we have to get that. That's, that is how we take the fight to the world. Because it is not my job to take the fight to the world. It's not, it's not a title's job to do that. It is our job, and it's not any one individual, even you guys. Yes, we sh individually I can go share Christ with the, with the barista at Starbucks, but together we have a corporate witness that is powerful, but only, in the, only to the extent that you are exercising your giftedness. So if you're sitting here today and you're not, I'd ask you, why not? Right, it's the question I ask my daughters all the time. If not you, who? If not now, when? If not you, who? If not now, when? So, how now shall we live? We're going to see this next week. Here, here's how we should live. It's verses 6 through 8. 
It's where I started. It's where we're going to start next week and probably camp out most of the time. I am already poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. Is we should live so that when you die, that's your truth. I should want to live so that when I die, that statement is the, is the truth. Because we should live on the offensive as Christians. We are not called to play defense. Yeah, we are defenders of the truth. The church is the pillar of the truth together. But we do that best by running the play. Not just sitting here and practicing. We are on offense, and we're to take the fight to the very pit of hell. But guys, as we are offensive, we need to be sure that it is Jesus Christ we are offending people with. Not our preferences, not our political views. Right? We need to be sure that it's the truth we are proclaiming. Not what we think ought to happen, or what we think sounds right. As the music team comes up and Leads us, I want to remind you that you have a chance to respond to what you've heard. We respond three ways every week here at Cornerstone. One is we give our tithes and offerings to the Lord. There's a box in the back. It's just a way for us to say to the Lord, our treasure is yours. Right? We respond in praise. That's the music that we sing and, and the prayers that we lift up. It's our way of taking the overflow of our heart comes out of our mouth. If you struggle, I can't sing a lick, but it doesn't stop me from making a noise. He just said amen, because he can hear me sing when I'm up here. But guys, why? Because, because this mouth cannot stop speaking about what he has done in this heart. And then the third way we respond is in communion. Right? We come to his table and we remember, this is what it looks like to die to self. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the powerful reminder from the Apostle Paul that, that no matter what our circumstances are, here's this man of God chained to a wall ready to be executed, and he says, there was nothing better to live for. And I'm not even I'm not done yet. I may be departing. But that's just a, the next chapter of the story. Lord, I want to pray right now for those in the sound of my voice who, when their time of departure comes, will not be with you in eternity because they have not come to profess you as Lord and Savior. Lord, may they not reject the free gift that if today is the day you have opened up their eyes to your beauty and their ears to your truth and their heart to the gospel, may today be the day they respond. And may they tell someone. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have responded and maybe have gotten sideways. I pray that Paul's admonition to us would remind us that our very lives are to preach the word. That we would get to the end of our days and realize that we lived fully for the glory of the one that gave us all of our days. 
The time is short. The consequence is eternal. May we make the most of the time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.